Well, I've been asked to give a, uh, an update on Pastor Neil, and unfortunately, I don't, have, I don't really have much of an update to share. Uh, he had been, uh, every once in a while, writing an email that I was able to share, but I don't have one that, uh, I don't have something from him to share, unfortunately. Any of you that haven't had a chance yet to watch the video of his sermon and his testimony when he was here, I would really encourage you to do so. It's on our, uh, it's on our Facebook page, and I also put it on YouTube. So if, you, if you're unfamiliar with the internet at all, then uh, I'm sure you could ask somebody, maybe a relative or a friend, that could help you out with that. But I'd really encourage you to watch it. And just to get, just get an idea of what God is doing through Neil and through his life, that, view has over th- or that video has over 3,000 views. So over 3,000 people have been impacted by the message of the hope that can be found in Jesus alone. And God is doing big things in Neil's life. It is not something that he ever would have chose, but even as he said in that, he doesn't fear death. He doesn't want to die, but he knows that whatever God has for him is the best thing. And Romans says that God works all things to the good of those who love him. So God is doing good things. But we are still praying for Pastor Neil. We're still praying for Heather. We're still praying beyond hope that he would be healed miraculously and returned to us. But we say, as with everything, thy will be done, Jesus. We don't know what God's going to do. But we, we are hoping and we are going to continue to lift him up in prayer. And so uh, the, the, the only update that I have is that he's, he's still suffering. He's still uh, walking, though, as a man of faith. He's still walking as a man of hope. And he knows that no matter what happens, whether he's healed miraculously or whether he goes to Jesus, that, that he is loved and he is a precious child of God. And uh, I had somebody uh, come in this week that I was talking to, and they just uh, they had said, well, he was a good pastor, and I had to correct him. I said, no, he is a good pastor. Neil may not be present in the church and in full-time ministry, but he's still in full-time ministry in his life. The calling to be a pastor hasn't left Neil. He's still preaching. He's still leading people to the Lord, and it's an awesome thing that he is faithful. So we continue to pray for Neil. We continue to pray for Heather. We continue to pray for Floyd and Eileen and all of their family that is going through this hard time, and we love him, and we miss him, and we hope and pray for the best but we continue to walk as people that don't hope, or that don't walk without hope. We have hope. We know that even if Neil is never restored to the church, we will see him once again if we have faith and hope and trust in Jesus. All right? Yes. Yeah, so his, his physical body is, is still deteriorating, but his spirit and his mind are still, still strong and still on the Lord. So I d- I'll just pray really quickly for Pastor Neil, and then I'll go into my message here. Father God, I pray that you would lift up Pastor Neil and you would hold him in your loving arms, Jesus. We don't know what your what your plan is for his life. We don't know whether you're going to heal him miraculously now or whether that healing is going to come finally in heaven, Jesus. But we know that you are good and that you have a good plan for this man. We thank you that he has uh, served and continued to serve you and love you for so many years. And we pray for peace for him. We pray for support for him and his family during this difficult time. He he cannot be strong enough on his own, as you have reminded him. He doesn't need to cling on to you, Jesus. You are clinging on to him. You are holding him in your loving arms. And I pray that you would help us as a church family to hold him up in prayer and support. And if there are ways that we can help uh, in whatever ways that you would call to our mind, Jesus, I pray that you would help us. But the best way... And the most lasting way is through prayer. So I pray that we would be people who would be faithful in prayer. And when even when we, if we don't feel like it's doing something, we have the testimony of Pastor Neil saying that is what it gets him through each day. That is what heals him of fear. That is what heals him of worry and anxiety. And he doesn't want to die, Jesus, but he has no fear of death because perfect love from you casts out all fear, Jesus. And so I thank you for that. And I thank you for the things that you are still doing, the way that you are still using him as a pastor to those he encounters in everyday life. And I thank you uh, for the people that are praying faithfully, and I pray that all of us would be found faithful in that way, Jesus. Be with Heather and all of their family through this hard time. Support them, help them, help them know that they are loved and cared for. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Yeah, that's, a, that's such a good point. The enemy, the enemy likes to take things that are hard, the things that are difficult, and try and rip us apart. But now's the time when we need Jesus the most. And now's the time to draw closest to him. That's a great point. 
So let us not be distracted in our faith. All right, this morning we are talking about returning to the book of John. And John 14, 15 to 31, you'll see up there. Love, obedience, and peace. Now, for anyone who's ever been to school, and if you, if you were raised in Canada, you had to go to school. It was legal. So unless any of you are super illegal here, you've been to school. So you can, you can sympathize with this. But when you're in school, there's assignments and there's projects that you have to do. And some of them feel really important and others not so much. They just kind of feel like something you have to do. And especially our uh, college-age students that would be here this morning, or know co- the people that know college-age students, this almost feels worse when you're paying tons of money for your education. And some of the assignments feel useful, and some not so much. And when I was in Bible college, there was one class I took. It was an intro to philosophy class. And uh, I was a little worried, because philosophy is a big word, and I was worried I wouldn't like it. But there was this one assignment that we had to do. And it was called the philosophy of pop culture. And what we did, the assignment of it after all of the teaching, was we had to take something from popular culture, and we had to figure out what the philosophy was of it. What was the message behind it? So we could pick a song, we could pick a movie, a TV show, a book, whatever we wanted. But then we had to dissect and figure out what's the underlying message of this thing. What is the author, what is the writer trying to get me to understand from this? And the really neat thing that I found in doing this was everything has a message. Some of the messages are good. Some of them have portions of truth, and then some of them are just terrible. Sometimes we think that uh, maybe what we're listening, oh, it's not that bad. But if you actually sit down and think about it, it could be really distracting or bad. But the positive side of this is, as I've done this more and more in my life, I've, I've come across things that you wouldn't think at all would be at all Christian, and there's truth there. There's something, there's something, there's hope, there's, there's a message there that actually has a piece. And there's a, there's a great message from a popular folk rock band song that goes like this. In these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. And to repeat it, it goes on to repeat it. In these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. And where you invest your love. You invest your life. I have a question for you. How do you know if somebody loves you? How do you know? This isn't rhetorical. How do you know? How do you know if somebody loves you? Actions. Very good. How else? Words. Yeah, that's true. How else? A display of emotion. Yes, very good. So when, when, uh, when somebody uh, says they love you, do you just believe them at their word? No. So words are helpful. Words are good. We teach, we teach children your words have value and they have meaning, but words are backed up by action. So uh, when we, when this line, in these lines, it said, where you invest your love, you invest your life. So if somebody says that they, they love you, but then they act in a very unloving way. Do you believe them? No. In the, uh, in the case of, uh, this, is, this may be a sensitive topic, so I'm sorry if this, this upsets somebody. But in the case of abusive husbands, they often will buy flowers and be, act very repentant and say sorry. But then they repeatedly go back to abusing their spouses. And so without, without an actual change, without actually their actions backing up their words, it's useless. And so it's more than just about the words that we do. And in 1 John 4.19, in our love for God, it says, We love because he first loved us. We are able to love God because he loves us. And I, I don't want you to miss this point. God loves you so much. God loves each one of you more than you will ever fully comprehend. It's beyond imagining how much he loves us. And just a small metaphor of this is the cross. That's how much God loves you. That even if it was just you, even if it was just one of you, your sin that he had to pay for on the cross, it would have been worth it for Jesus. And so that is what love is. Love is about action. And so each one of us is loved so much by God 
but yet, and he then desires a personal and growing relationship with each one of us. So he has made the first step, and he's asking us, just as Chloe's song, God's reckless love for us, he pursues us. He leaves the 99 and goes after us. He leaves the comfort of heaven, the splendor, the glory, the majesty of heaven to come down to earth for each one of us. And so he's done everything that he needs in order to restore a relationship with us. The only thing he's waiting for is us to respond. And so this morning, we're returning to our series on the book of John. And we started it last January. And we took a pause over Christmas, but that pause turned into a little bit longer. But over the next few weeks, we're going to be jumping around a little bit in the the last half of the book of John, uh, which will take us till just after Easter. And then we're going to be starting a new series. So we'll be missing some of the uh, sections of the narrative portions of John, but we're going to be hitting the major highlights and the teachings of the book within the rest of it. But today we're talking about responding to God's love for us by loving him in return. And then we're going to talk about obedience to God. And then the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. And then that true peace can only come from God. Okay, so I know that's a few different things. But I don't want you to lose sight of the main point of what the message is this morning, which is our relationship with Jesus. As individuals and as a church, if we truly know who God is, and we truly know how much he loves us, then we should not be able to help but love him in return. So the Holy Spirit and our experience of peace are related to love and our obedience because they are part of our relationship with God. And so how does all that sound? Everyone's with me? Everyone's tracking? Following along? No one's asleep yet. That's a good sign. Okay, so we're going to be digging into John 14, 15 to 31, and it's going to be on the screen behind you, but feel free to swipe, uh, to swipe there in your eye Bible or on the, the pew Bibles in front of you. It's going to be out of the NIV, but uh, please track along with me. If you love me, Jesus says, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you will know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world would not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, He will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would have been glad that I am going to the Father. But the Father is greater than I. I have told you now, I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Would you just join me in praying as we continue this message? Father God, this is a a lot of verses, and sometimes the Bible is, is a little hard to wrap our minds around. But I pray that you would help us this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move among each one of us and in our mind, and you would bring us uh, to a place where we understand what you would have us do. The message and preaching isn't just about hearing things and being 
just about being encouraged or feeling good, Lord, but it's about responding to your call in our lives to action, Jesus. So I pray that you would help each one of us as we are digging into your word, as we are hearing from your Holy Spirit, Jesus. I pray that uh, this wouldn't be my words, this would be your words, Jesus, moving through me. And so I pray that you would help each one of us to know what it is that you would have us do when we leave this place. So I thank you for who you are, Jesus. I thank you for the truth that is found in your word. And I pray that you would speak to each one of us in a powerful way this morning. In your mighty and precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so this is a lot of verses. So I can't go uh, fine-tooth comb through every single one, but there's a few things that I want to highlight here. As I mentioned uh, earlier, this is, we're coming up to Easter, and there's two important days right around Easter, Good Friday and Easter, or Resurrection Sunday. On Friday, Jesus was crucified and died to pay for the sins of the world, and on Sunday, he rose again, conquering sin and death. And we have the perspective of knowing that this is the process and how it happened. But it's, it's important to realize that when we're reading the Bible, the people back then did not always have this type of perspective. And Jesus here in this passage is preparing his disciples. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus would tell his disciples, I'm going away, I'm dying, I'm going away. And uh, Peter even said, there's no way that will ever happen. There's no way you'll ever die. And that's the, the harshest rebuke Jesus ever gives. He said, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus, it's not that he enjoys walking towards the cross, but he has the perspective and knowing what is coming. And so he's preparing his people. And in this passage, he's warning them and preparing them for his departure and his return to heaven. He's comforting them. He's preparing them for his coming death on the cross, as he does repeatedly. But he's also preparing them to expect the coming of the Holy Spirit. He calls it another counselor, an advocate coming for them. So uh, before we get too far into it, I just want to make a couple notes about this passage to see what's happening. So in verse 19, he's talking about uh, his coming death and resurrection. So the world will think he's gone. They think, okay, we took care of that problem, that guy who claimed to be God, we're getting rid of him. But he says, I won't stay dead. I'll be coming back. So he's saying that he'll be with us even after that. And that means that if we're tied intimately with Christ through his Holy Spirit, what happens to him happens to us. So Jesus died and he rose again. And he's saying, if you're in me, if you believe in me, you may die, but you'll come back. And so that's the, the promise of the resurrection. And then in ver verse 20, it validates the power of the Father. So he's saying that, uh, that as I've been with you, the power of God, the power of the Father God, the one I am, the greatest uh, and only God, true God, has been with them the whole time. So he said, I, I am the presence of the Father here. I am, I am the power of God on earth. And then in verse 21, it's similar to verse 15. It's a call to obedience for people. And also later when they receive the Spirit. And we'll get into that a little bit more. And then in verse 22, this man Judas is wondering why... Uh, why he would not do this publicly. He's saying, why doesn't the whole world know that this is happening? Why do we just know this is happening? And it, just as a note, it makes, us, it makes a little in brackets there, not Judas Iscariot. So they're saying this wasn't the disciple that betrayed Jesus. It was another guy named Judas, some poor guy having the same name, but what do you do? In verse uh, 23, for the third time, Jesus talks about obedience. And then in verse 24, it talks about those how those who do not love Jesus or obey him, which is connected, not loving Jesus and not obeying him are connected, they're not connected to Jesus. So Jesus is saying, the, the promises that I am giving you are only if you are connected to me. And so uh, there's also an important thing to notice here. There's a really delicate word play at work here. The, the Apostle John was really good wordsmith. He used very metaphorical language and really, uh, really kind of cool mannerisms and things in here. But in this chapter, three distinct times, Jesus says that he will come. And what he's talking about here is, first of all, his Easter return, and then his coming to them with the Holy Spirit, which in, uh, in church terms is the day of Pentecost. Uh, and then the third is his climactic second coming. So when Jesus comes for the last time and raises the living and the dead and calls those who have faith in him with him. And so he's saying that he is with us forever and always. So he's saying, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. 
I'm going away, but I'm coming back. And he's with us forever and for always. He's saying he doesn't leave us alone. And uh, to keep note here, Jesus starts off this passage with a very important first step in our relationship with God. He says the big I-F, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me, you'll obey me. So I don't remember the exact day that I said these words. Kirsten's brain might work like that, but mine doesn't. But there was a point when we were dating that I told her, I love you. And uh, fast forward a few more years in our dating, and I asked her to marry me. We got married, and on the day that we were married, I was shaking like a leaf. I was so nervous and excited. And if you had asked me on that day, could you possibly love Kirsten more than you do now? I would have said no. I don't, I don't see how that's possible. My heart feels full of love for this woman. And uh, now looking back, the seven and a half years that we've been married, coming on eight, uh, the three years that we were dating before that, so almost 10 years, uh, I, I realized what I felt back then was insignificant almost compared to what I feel for her now. We've, we've grown together. We, we have a way of communicating sometimes when she'll just stand in front of me and I just know she wants a hug. It, it should, no one needs to tell me that. I just, I know her enough. I can read her. We've gone through things together. We've gone through joyous times. We've gone through hard times together. We've grown. We've adapted to each other. And we love each other more because of those experiences. I know her more and I love her more. And that doesn't mean our, our marriage is always sunshine and roses. There are hard times. There are, uh, Christians don't have fights. They just have disagreements. But there are a couple of those along the way. But I, I realize that when, if this is the same with our relationship with God. The more that we love him, the more that we get to know him, the more we obey him and that we, we follow him. And so the more we learn about God, the more that we can learn to love him for who he is. The more that we learn about his grace for us, his mercy for us, and his power, we should be struck by, well, of course God loves me. I'm awesome. No, instead we're struck by, I can't believe that God loves me. He is awesome, and I am not, and yet he loves me so much. So the deeper we experience God's transforming love, the more we should want to obey him. And a man named Robbie Gallaty, a pastor in the States, illustrates it really well with this triangle. Uh, it's know God, love God, and obey God. And so as one side of this triangle grows, as our knowledge for God grows, the other two need to uh, grow as well. So in any relationship, in order to stay in balance, this should grow. So if our knowledge of God grows and our love for God grows, but our obedience to God doesn't, then our, then our obedience is lacking and it's out of whack. And so in order to stay in balance, the more we learn about God, the more we learn about what he wants for us, the more we read about Jesus and hear about Jesus and experience his love for us, the more we should obey him. So if, if somebody has come to a place where they're just, they're just barely figuring out faith. So uh, me, when I, was, when I was a little baby Christian, I just had heard about Jesus and I had experienced something of him. My knowledge for him was, was very, very little. I just knew, okay, there's a God out there and he loves me and he wants me to follow him. That was it. So my obedience versus now was much, much smaller. But now that I've known him more, now that I've walked with him for years of my life, I know him far more. He's infinite. There's still way more to learn than I've ever learned. But my love for him has grown, and so has my obedience. And so if we, if we have walked with God for a long time, and we've learned a lot of things about him, and we've learned to love him more, but our obedience hasn't changed, then there's a huge problem there. And so uh, obedience without love, though, so if we just obey, we just set ourselves these rules, but we don't love God, we don't know him, then it's just false religion. And so it's not just about following rules. And then the other side is, if we have love and knowledge without obedience, it's actually a rejection of God's love. So it's saying, I know all about you, Jesus. I know as much as I can know. I've read the Bible countless times. I know everything that Jesus has said. I know what he wants me to do, but I don't do it. Well, then you, how do you actually say you know and love God? 
because you're not actually following him. So the first step in our relationship with God is obedience to him. So Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So we have the commandments. That's the Bible. That's what Jesus has told us to do, especially his gospels. That means that we should study what Jesus would have us do. In other words, read the Bible. So if you would say that you are a Christian, and in this past week you haven't read your Bible, not to condemn you, but that's probably a problem. Because if you say you know God and you love him, that means that you should want to have a growing relationship with him. And the best way for him to speak to us is through his word. And so that means getting to know God. So study the Bible, memorize it, soak in it, and listen. Do it prayerfully. Ask Jesus, what would you have me to know? And then when he says, keep the commandments, that means action. That means we don't just learn about what Jesus says, but we actually go out and do it. When he says, love your neighbors, he's not just saying, have nice feelings about them. He's saying, go out and actually do something that helps them. And so he says lots of times throughout the entire Bible that we are to love others, pray for our enemies, care for the poor, and make disciples. So how are we doing at that? How are you doing at that? How am I doing at that personally? Are we actually, could we actually point to our lives and say, oh, here is how I'm making disciples. Here's how I'm caring for the poor. Here's how I'm doing this. And Jesus, Jesus had radical faith. Jesus lived this out. He didn't just go and tell other people to do this. He did this by his example of his life. So an important thing to note is this doesn't just mean giving money to somebody else to do this. So it's not just about hiring somebody to help to do something. So uh, we, can't, we can't push this off on somebody else. This is actually individually in our lives we are to do this. So Jesus says we are to preach the word. So that means actually telling other people what the Bible says. Yes, that's done in the, the context of relationship. It's done individually, not necessarily on the street corner yelling at people because that doesn't really work. But it does mean actually sharing your faith with other people. And uh, ministry is actually something that we're all called to do. It's not optional. It's not something that Jesus said, well, if you actually feel like being a super Christian, you'll do ministry. He said, no, follow me. And that means follow him into ministry. That means do things. This is how you do your life. So uh, an important thing with this, if actually, says if we love God, he loves us. And so it's not a set of conditions. It's not the saying that God's love is conditional. It's that these are essential relations. So if you actually love somebody, it means you do what's best for them. If I say I love Kariston, and then I'm a jerk to her all the time, she would say, no, you don't love me. You just say you love me. But so if we say we love Jesus, then are we going to act in loving ways to him? Are we going to act in loving ways by actually following him and doing what he has called us to do? So it's not enough to say that we love God and that we are a Christian and that we want to follow him and then to go and disobey him with the rest of our lives. It'd be the same, like I said, if I said I love Kirsten, but then I constantly put my own wants and desires ahead of her. It'd be like saying, I love Liberty, and then every time she wants to do something with me, just ignoring her and walking away. If she comes up to you and, or comes up to me and says, uh, has a pretend phone, well, she actually has a real phone, but it just doesn't have a battery, and says that somebody's on the phone, and I just say, oh, that's nice, but I'm too busy. And, and that's, of course, none of us will go, well, I'm not going to do that to my kid. I'm not do that to my grandkid. But then do we do that to God? Does God say, go and talk to that person? And then we say, well, no, I'm too busy. And so when, we, uh, when Jesus calls us to love him, this means we are to act in loving ways. Verses 21 to 24 says, having the commandments of Jesus is actually useless unless we actually follow them. And so as followers of Jesus, we must have these commandments sounding in our ears and written on our hearts so that w when we have them, we actually do them. So when we, uh, the best evidence of our love for God is actually obedience to his commands. So that means that we have a growing knowledge. 
That means we study the Bible. That means we do Bible study together. We have a small group where we grow in knowledge, but then we act on it. So it means we're growing in obedience. So this doesn't mean that we all of a sudden have to go from, uh, from doing five minutes of reading the Bible a day to all of a sudden every day we have to spend eight hours reading the Bible. This can be an incremental thing. So if we've never shared our faith with somebody, this doesn't mean that all of a sudden you have to become a full-time evangelist. But it just means we start to try and share our faith with people. And uh, we have a great resource. Just as a side note, there's a book called God Space. And it's all about having spiritual conversations in a natural way. So this doesn't mean we have to memorize certain things to say. It's just being a normal person and having normal conversations about God. And so if any of you would be interested in that, you can buy them from the office when it's open. I think they're only like 10 bucks, but total side note. But everything that we do should come out of our relationship with Jesus. We should always ask the question, is this the most loving thing to do in this situation? And in uh, Luke 12, 47 to 48, it says this. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does know, does not know, and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I I was listening to a sermon once by uh, Timothy Keller, and he was talking about this concept, and he said, uh, just so you know, the more sermons that you listen to, the more God actually expects something of you to to actually do. And he said, uh, now I know that a lot of you are going to stop coming now because you're like, I don't want any more responsibility. But But his point was, faith is about doing things. So coming to church on a Sunday isn't just about feeling nice. It should be that. It should be about being encouraged and being bolstered. But it's also about why you're there to help other people. So we're being, we come to church together to be equipped, to be refreshed, and to minister to each other, and then to go out into the, our lives and live them as sent people. March 4th as people of fo- who follow Jesus. And so how are you obeying Jesus today? How are you listening and responding to what he's asking you to do? Is there something that maybe Jesus has asked you to do that you're not doing? Is there something that he has laid on your heart for you to do? Maybe a ministry to start volunteering in. Maybe it's to bring a meal to one of your neighbors. Maybe it's telling one of your friends about Jesus. What's he calling you to do that maybe you're not responding? And if you are responding to Jesus and you're listening, then I want to say power to you. Keep going. Be encouraged. We are all called to respond to him. So just to, just to, uh, just take this aside. This doesn't need to be complicated. You don't have to go to Bible college to share what God is speaking to you. So the, the youth that I had share, that's because God, God did something on that weekend, and it's uncomfortable to speak in front of people. I understand that, but it's a good, it's good practice for us to actually, when God does something, to share about it. We have a testimony. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't need to be a big thing every time, but God is doing something in all, each of our lives. It's just about having the, the courage to actually step out and share that. So uh, one, of, one very, very, very tangible way for us to respond to this would be to bring somebody to church. And Easter, actually, and Christmas are two really good times of the year when people are willing to go to church. And there's, there's nothing uh, per se uh, magical about being in a church building, but when people of faith gather together, God is there. God is actually there wherever you are because he's with you, but when people gather together and we praise, praise God with songs and when we worship him in prayer together, it can be something powerful. And uh, in fact, more people are actually willing. I don't have the stat right on me, so I'm not going to make it up. But there, there are a ton of people that are willing to go to church if someone were to invite them. And there's a pastor in Summerland that was, that was talking with somebody, that another coach, I think, of a hockey team. And the guy was kind of talking. He said, oh, you're a pastor. And he said, uh, oh, the, what church do you go to? And he said, oh, I go to Summerland Baptist, and I, I'm one of the pastors. And he's like, so uh, is any, just anyone allowed to go there? Or do you have to, like, be a member? Or do you have to, like, uh, have, like, something? Like, he just, he had no idea. 
Like, churches should be the most welcoming places ever. But this guy just had no concept of what church is. And he was willing to go. And he said, oh, like, I'm allowed to go. And so, so this pastor just kind of talked him through, okay, this is what a Sunday usually looks like. We do these songs and, like, and we pray. And, and then we, t- we talk about the Bible a little bit and how it applies to our lives. And just went through. And this guy had no concept. And he was totally willing to go to church. And so I think often we have the mindset, and I've had it sometimes, that of course everyone knows that they're allowed to come to church. If they're not in church, because they don't want to be. But maybe they're not in church because they've never been invited by somebody who goes to church. So I would encourage you. And the reason I'm, and I'm saying bring someone to church, not invite someone to church, is because then you're taking the ownership to actually like, bring them. And you're ushering them in. And you're saying, okay, this, you're my friend. Like, come to church with me. And then maybe take them out for a meal after and ask them, okay, what did you experience? What did you like? What did you not like? And kind of walk through that. So that's one really tangible way that we can respond. And so also in this, I just, I just want to make sure that I'm not uh, being too heavy here. Jesus doesn't res- tell us, just go and work harder, and then I'll love you. He loves us so much. He loves us more than we will ever know. And he also promises to help us with this. Jesus promised that when he was leaving, that it was, he said, it's actually better if I go because I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. He calls it in, in the NIV here, he says, another advocate. And later on, he calls him the Spirit of Truth. And then later on, even, he calls him the Holy Spirit. So there are several aspects of the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we see in this passage. The first is that uh, he calls the Holy Spirit the advocate. So this is important, and as Michael could explain better than me, since he's a lawyer, an advocate or legal counsel is someone who comes alongside somebody and helps them. They're the the help for them. They're the ones that give them guidance and counsel, and as they stand before the judge, they're the one that helps them and that knows the rules and actually uh, helps them with the problems, so they encourage them. And in some translations of the Bible, it calls uh, the Holy Spirit a comforter. But actually, comforter itself is, is not quite the best thing because comforter almost seems too soft and cuddly. The Holy Spirit isn't necessarily soft and cuddly. I actually had a, a professor at Bible college that wrote a, his thesis and called it the fiery Holy Spirit, which I loved. It's a cool picture because in Acts it says tongues of fire. And the imagery of fire is purification. It's burning away sin and burning away things. And so his whole thesis was about... Uh, the role of judgment of the Holy Spirit in the book of Luke and Acts. And so the Holy Spirit as advocate, that, that's very much in legal terms. And so uh, the fiery Holy Spirit helps to convict us of our sin. So he's here to help us through our everyday life, and part of that is to make us more like Jesus. So it's cutting away things of our lives that would hinder us. And so it's not just the helper, because that almost seems just a little bit passive or subordinate. But the Holy Spirit's not subordinate to us or inferior in any way. In fact, the Spirit is the very presence of God in our lives. He's the power and presence of God. And one of the, uh, one of the aspects of the Holy Spirit here is, uh, is, is in terms of family. It's in terms of relationship. So Jesus, uh, it's, it's very intentional that Jesus calls God the Father. He, and he is the Son and so when we, uh, Jesus says that he will not leave us as orphans, that we were created to be children of the most high God. And, uh, but he leaves it up to us. So he says, here's the offer of the Holy Spirit. Here's the offer of being part of my family. If you love me, you will do what I say. You will do what I say, not just because I demand perfect obedience, but because it is what's best for you. When Jesus calls us to do something, it's not because he needs help. Just FYI, God is omnipotent. He can do anything he wants, but he asks us to help him because he wants us to actually respond to him in obedience because that's what's best for us. So he says that he'll send the helper. He'll send the advocate. And so we see that the spirit of truth here in this passage, this is a direct contrast to Satan. Satan, as, uh, as Sister Eileen shared earlier, he wants to do evil things in our lives. He wants to lie. He wants to tear things down that God is trying to use for good. And so calling the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth is a direct contrast to Satan, to the enemy who's a liar. 
So the spirit of truth bears witness to Jesus, who is the truth. Jesus is the, the source of all truth and all life. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so as uh, Chloe shared uh, during the, the rush last week, and they were sharing, Jesus is the, the gate. He's the only way into heaven. Jesus is the only way into heaven. He's the truth, the life. And then uh, the spirit also, that he's dwelling and internal. So he resides within us. And when we declare that Jesus is Lord, his presence works within us to purify us, to sanctify us. And it's also a witness to our relationship. So it says that we won't be orphans. So the spirits work in our lives. We can feel his presence. We can hear him speaking to us through the word. And it's a testimony that God is with us and that we are adopted as children. So in Advocate, this looks like in Romans, it says in 8, 26 to 27, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he searches our hearts and knows the minds of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Has anyone ever had a prayer time that they just are in pain, and you don't even know what to say? Uh, I had a pastor at Bible college that his two favorite prayers when he was in trouble was uh, help, and this was your idea in the first place. And when we're going through hard times and we're obeying God, sometimes we don't know what to say. But that's when Jesus says, well, you don't even need to know the words. The Holy Spirit will advocate. He'll pray for you. And so God helps us through all of our difficult circumstances. And so uh, Jesus calls us to love him and to obey him. And then he promises us the help of the Holy Spirit to help us to live out our lives and to cleanse us from sin. And then the next thing that Jesus promises is to give us peace, but not just any peace, true peace. And so uh, peace in, uh, in the Bible is not fear or worry, but peace. The, the Hebrew word is shalom. And uh, it's better and different than worldly peace. And I'll break into that. And then the rest of God. So it's, it's that time when you can truly just unburden yourself before the Lord and just rest and be recovered. So the peace that Jesus offers is infinitely more powerful than the peace offered by the world. So the peace offered by the world is an absence of things, such as an absence uh, from conflict. So when we think of peace in the worldly sense, we think, well, there's no war. There's a ceasefire. That's peace. There's an absence of war. That's peace. Or an absence of noise. But the peace of God is actually a filling. It's a filling of purpose. It's a filling of the God-shaped hole or vacuum that is inside each and every one of us. It's a filling of God's presence. In 1 John 4.18, it says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So what this is saying is that the peace of God fills us so totally that it doesn't matter what our circumstances are. Yes, they are difficult. Yes, they are painful. But we're not afraid. Pastor Neil is living this out right now. He said that uh, I'm not afraid to die. I don't want to die. But I know where I'm going. And so that is what perfect peace is. It's that regardless of what is happening in our lives, regardless of what pain we've experienced, regardless of how many hardships we are going through, we can have peace that comes only from God. It says that it is peace that transcends all understanding. There have been times that I've been going through something very difficult, and I just pray, and nothing changes. God doesn't take away the circumstances. He doesn't find me a solution. He doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do, but I have peace. And that's what I needed. And the situation eventually gets worked out or it doesn't. But I got what I needed from God. My soul was stilled and rested before him. 
And so before anyone has a relationship with God, there's an unsettledness in their lives. They feel unsettled. And with the exception of those who have been obedient Christians their whole lives perfectly, everyone has experienced this. When I first encountered God in high school, in a powerful way, uh, I, I wish I could say I immediately began obeying him perfectly in all things. But I'm not perfect, and I didn't. And so I would go to church every once in a while, and I liked going to church, but the, the annoying thing was every pastor that was preaching a message was preaching about me. And I don't know how they knew, but they were, like, hitting me right in the middle of my forehead with, like, oh, I just felt like, oh, how did he know this morning? Like, I don't know. I, I realize now, looking back, okay, there was the Holy Spirit, because those pastors weren't smart enough. No, no offense to me, but I'm not smart enough. But, uh, but this is, that was, there was an unsettledness. I was living a disobedient life, and, I, and God was drawing me to him. And so once I finally, as a young adult, took me a few years, I have a hard head, I'm stubborn. Uh, once he hit me up the head with enough of those, I realized, okay, I'm not living how God wants me to live. I know I'm not. I've seen in my life that I know I shouldn't have. And so I prayed for forgiveness. And I said, okay, Jesus, I'm actually going to follow you with my life. I'm tired of just trying to do my own thing and just have enough of you that I feel okay. But I actually surrendered to him. And I culminated that with a baptism and, uh, and a public declaration of my faith. And it was an awesome moment. And uh, I still haven't followed him perfectly since then. But as I've gotten to know him more, my relationship, my obedience with him has grown. And I've learned uh, the beautiful thing about our relationship with God is it's not about trying harder. It's just about loving him more. And the more you love him, the more you want to follow him in obedience. So yes, it takes effort, and yes, it takes hard choices. Yes, it does things that, it's, it means giving up things that aren't helpful. But the peace that we can have in those circumstances that are most difficult is just a beautiful thing. It's God changing our hearts and our minds to be enlivened with him. So the, the peace refers to the Hebrew greeting of shalom, as I said earlier. And for Jesus, that's the aim of his work on earth. He's trying to create equilibrium and restore the richness of humanity's relationship with him. So shalom is what he brings, and that can only be found in a right relationship with him. And uh, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says this, total well, about the definition of peace. Total well-being, prosperity, and security associated with God's presence among his people. And uh, in the Old Testament, this is linked to the covenant. So the promise of God, if they... If they did the things that they were supposed to do, then they would have peace with God. And uh, for in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it doesn't take very deep reading to realize they didn't do what God said over and over and over and over again. They disobeyed, and they suffered the consequences of that. And so the Old Testament people waited for the New Testament when the promise of the Prince of Peace would come. And Jesus is that Prince of Peace. And he walked, as he walked towards the cross, he had perfect peace. It says in the Old Testament uh, books of uh, Isaiah 9-6 and Zechariah 9-9-10 that the Messiah, the Jesus, is the Prince of Peace who will affect peace on earth. And all of us are called to be people who make peace. Uh, I can't pronounce this guy's name, but I think it's Gulick. <laughs> Forgive me. Uh, peacemaking is therefore much more than a passive suffering to main pe maintain peace or even bridge building or reconciling alienated parties. It is the demonstrations of God's love through Christ in all its richness. So we are called to be people who not only have peace in our lives, but make peace in other people's lives. And this isn't done through our own strength. But this is done through sharing Jesus with other people, with sharing his love, with being there and walking alongside people who need his help. And so God gives us peace. And with his spirit and his love for us, it's not only for our personal benefit, it's for others. So in Matthew, Jesus says that the peacemakers, those who make peace, are blessed. They're blessed. And so we are to be people who spread God's peace. And so now coming back to those song lyrics that I, that I started with. In these bodies, we will live. 
and in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. How are you investing your life today? All of us have our days on this earth numbered. We just don't know that number. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We hope and pray it is soon, but the Bible says that he delays because he is gracious and he wants more and more people to be saved. So God offers us a relationship with him that helps us through all of our trials of life and gives us infinite peace. And how will you respond to God's offer today? Will you love him in action and obedience? Or will you reject him and his love? As you spend time in your schools, in your work, in your home, in your friend circles, how are you investing your life? The Bible says that all of us who have been... uh, who have given our lives to Jesus, have been bought with a price. And that was Jesus' death and burial. It says that if we have a relationship with him, our lives are not our own. And we have a choice. We can either invest in building God's eternal kingdom or in our own. We can invest in love for Jesus and for others or love for ourselves. So as you go throughout your day, through your work day, through your retired life, through your stay-at-home mom, through your school, how are you investing your life? Are you sharing your faith with others? If you're retired, are you spending each moment that you have left on this earth, or are you trying to coast into eternity as easily as possible? Know that Jesus loves you more than you will ever possibly know. I can't say that enough. Jesus' love for us is infinite. And yet, uh, sometimes we, we misunderstand that and think, well, it's, it's all about me. Okay, I'm good. I have a relationship with Jesus. I'm, I'm good. I have, I have my eternity. I have my get out of uh, uh, hell free card. And yet, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So would you join me in prayer? Jesus, I pray that you would help each one of us to be found faithful. That the words that all of us uh, that know them long to hear in heaven is, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that you would help each one of us not just to know lots of things about you and not just to love you lots, but to obey you well, Jesus. And it's not about earning anything we can't earn grace isn't against grace is against earning our salvation but it is not against doing good things jesus you have called us to action you have been a man of action you lived your life in such a way that you healed people you loved people you filled the needs of people around you and you pointed to the hope that can be found in you alone and i pray that you would help us to do the same jesus that as we love you, as we obey you, as we have been filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would be people who make peace around us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.